This is, of course, a global podcast, but this week we want to devote our time to the UK because so much is happening in the UK. Climate emergency has been declared and there is civil disobedience in the streets. And welcome to Outrage and Optimism, a new podcast about dealing with the climate crisis and reshaping the world. My name's Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. And today, we explore what's been going on in the United Kingdom over the last two weeks. This has been an amazing period of time for climate action. From civil disobedience in the streets, to the declaration of an emergency, to the first week without using coal since the birth of the Industrial Revolution. We'll explore what's been going on and what lessons there are for action in the rest of the world. And we speak with William Hague, former leader of the Conservative Party, former Foreign Secretary, about how those on the right of politics can get engaged in the debate. Thanks for being here. Now, a lot's happened in the UK in the last two weeks, and it merits unpacking because it's both interesting and exciting in itself and also relevant for other countries that are now trying to make these shifts and these transitions. So I'm just going to quickly summarise the many things that have happened and then we can dive into the conversation. The first thing is that London was effectively closed down for about 10 days by Extinction Rebellion, who were a UK group, and in a remarkably coordinated series of protests, shut down multiple sites across London, calling for uh, three things. The first was a declaration of emergency on climate change. The second was a commitment to combat climate change with a new target of net zero by 2025. And the third was a creation of citizen assemblies on a regional basis to determine how this could be delivered. And that third part was critical, as it was a mechanism to allow people to participate in a just transition, rather than the poor bearing the brunt of the burden. And interestingly, some of the research they did suggested that citizen assemblies will actually adopt more ambitious targets when it's bottom up in that way than when it's top down. So, so this was all going on in London, and towards the end of this period, Greta Thunberg arrived in London and was her normal compelling self and met with party leaders and spoke at the House of Commons and really elevated the issue even further. And throughout this time, um, different towns and cities across the UK began declaring states of emergency as a result of climate change. That then culminated in Scotland and Wales doing the same and declaring states of emergency. And then Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition in the UK, Um, announced that uh, they would indeed push for the declaration of an emergency. Uh, This went through the House of Commons with a motion. Uh, The Conservative Party neither opposed nor supported it, but many members stood up and spoke in favour of it. And Jeremy Corbyn then addressed protesters in Parliament Square, having really delivered this significant outcome that Extinction Rebellion had been calling for. The declaration of emergency doesn't actually compel the government to do anything specific, although the motion does call on the government to achieve net zero by 2050 rather than the current target of 80% below 1990 levels by 2050. After all of this, the Committee on Climate Change, which is the UK government advisor on what climate targets it should adopt, came out and said that net zero by 2050 is indeed possible for the UK. Um, There's lots of different measures that it details that are really interesting, um, both to do with kind of all new cars being electric by 2035, forest cover increasing from 13% to 17% by 2050, buildings being retrofitted, but also 
personal behavior changes like people eating less meat, ensuring that thermostats are set no higher than 19 degrees Celsius. It's a very interesting series of measures. And if implemented, it would probably be the most ambitious climate change plan in the world. Some other countries like Costa Rica already have that kind of goal. But in terms of distance to run from where we are now to where we'd get to, uh, this would be the biggest lift. And finally, after all of this, um, the UK in the last week, really since the 1st of May, has been the first period of a week that the UK has not burned any coal since the start of the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s. So that is a lot that's been packed into that timescale. Um, so, so where are we on all of this? Christiana, what do you think? Well, a couple of things. First, I think that civil disobedience is uh, is very warranted at this point. And in history, we have seen that civil disobedience erupts when the con- there is consensus that the injustice that is being done is just too great to uh, to be swallowed. So uh, I think that civil disobedience on the lack of action on climate change is justified in every country. That would be my first uh, my, my first comment. Let me go to the three different um, expectations and calls of the Extinction Rebellion. The first one, I absolutely agree with them that we all have to call for an emergency status on climate change because we have delayed way too long and the impacts are getting way too great and too frequent. To their call for net zero by 2025 there, frankly, I do have a difference of opinion. I don't think that it is actually helpful to do what I think Mark Carney would call a jump to distress, which is to decarbonize the economy at that speed and that scale. For me, what is really important is to set a very, very high target net zero and give it a concrete date. Paris Agreement states by 2050, and then unleash the creativity and the ingenuity of all different sectors, because then my sense is we would get to net zero before 2050. And the third piece that they are asking for the consultative process, um, independently of the format, I do think that it is important to have a well thought out consultative process about how to decarbonize the entire national economy, because me being the only UK, not UK citizen on this, on this, uh, conversation. My external observation is that Brexit is failing because there was not enough of a consultative process Mm. in how to go about it. There was much more of a top-down attitude, and there wasn't really a very broad consultation as to how do we want to move into that. So I'm all for broad consultation, strong targets, net zero, and definitely definitely declaring emergency. That's where I am. Interesting. Paul, what do you think? I mean, uh, what an exciting short period of time in in, uh, the very long time I've worked on climate change. You know, Greta, we all know about Greta. You know, they're making statues of Greta now. People (laughs) march behind huge statues of her with her her fierce eyebrows. I mean, I'm joking, but it's it's a serious thing and it's a good thing. And then Extinction Rebellion, um, they made these demands and uh, and actually the, they got they got their demands uh, you know the first of all uh, a climate emergency was declared in Scotland then in Wales and then the speaker of the house of commons um, confirmed after a, a verbal vote uh, a motion uh, that the uk parliament uh, declares a climate emergency so that's incredibly good stuff 
Speaking about whether you can get to uh, net zero by 2025, um, it's probably possible if you have a wartime economy, if you create a, a government of all the major parties. You know, British GDP went up by 21% in the three years from 1938 to 1941. And uh, we actually won the Battle of Britain by manufacturing more airplanes than the enemy. So, you, you know, there, there's a great potential to sort of gear up uh, an industrialized economy. But um, I think the Committee on Climate Change talking about net zero by 2050, if we go for that, I'm sure, as Christiana says, we would actually get there quicker than that. And, and this is the important point, there would be masses of great jobs in, in industries of the future well i mean that's interesting and we should come back to the 2025 thing and 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 what how we feel about that because i think there's a lot of very interesting points there i mean one thing that that i came across that i thought was interesting is the committee on climate change had previously proposed 80 percent by 2050 they're now suggesting net zero by 2050 is possible for no additional cost and that's because in the intervening years since the original assessment and this one technology has gotten so much better that we can actually achieve that additional 20% for no additional cost compared to what it was before, which I th think speaks to your point, Christiana, of if you set these targets, then the economy will innovate in response to them and find a way to actually deliver them at a low cost. Yeah, and just to set the record straight, um, the uh, the opinion of the Climate Change Commission was actually already previously, months ago, it was scheduled to come out on right. May 2. So it's not that they all of a sudden reacted uh, yeah. immediately to the call for emergency on the part of, of the parliament. So just, just to know those, those two things coincided quite happily, but they were not causal. Um, but, but yes, just to come back to your point, I, I certainly think, and, and that is actually what we have been seeing when China and India have established targets for themselves, which they undertook under the Paris Agreement. They actually set their mind to them. They unleash the private sector. They set the policies and they have actually already before the dates in which they said they would comply with those targets, they have over complied. And so those are very good examples of the fact that if you do have a clear end that you are pursuing uh, and a clear date and you put the policies and the incentives in place, we are capable of reaching those targets in advanced time periods. Well, yeah, I mean, just, you know, I, I love the story of the private sector, um, you know, because it's where amazing things happen. Just one, you know, if, if listeners don't know, uh, Beyond Meat uh, went floated on the stock exchange on Thursday in New York, I think, uh, uh, had a at about 1.3 billion valuation, went up 163% in, in two days. It's now worth 3.77 billion. That's serious money for, uh, for a vegan burger company. Yes, indeed. Um, let's just come back to the 2025 thing, because I think, so so when um, the Committee on Climate Change pushed for this net zero by 2050 that I think we would regard as ambitious, as we set out before, uh, Extinction Rebellion described this as a betrayal um, because the hitting net zero by 2050 gives us a 50% shot at staying below 1.5 degrees and also doesn't necessarily leave the space for emerging economies to emit more in the coming years. So I completely take the point about the kind of, you know, wartime mobilization, the the needing to sort of like set targets to allow innovation to happen. But how how do we square those two things together, do you think? Well, the the fact is that 
we have to reach net zero globally by 2050. And those industrialized countries such as the UK have a much greater responsibility and possibility because of in much higher resources and access to technology, et cetera, et cetera, have a much better possibility of reaching those targets early. So it is actually impossible to say which countries are going to reach net zero by 2050 and who will be early. But I think the important thing is to trust that we do have the investments into the technology and we have the ingenuity that we're actually going to get to now stand ready for this to global net zero before 2050 if we actually set the right signals now. Okay. So we're speaking to William Haig today about all of this. And for those who haven't heard of him, uh, maybe outside the UK, he's a big and influential figure on the right of British politics and has been for decades. He used to be the leader of the Conservative Party and then under David Cameron in the coalition Conservative Liberal Democrat government, he was Foreign Secretary. He now does a lot of interesting work in the non-profit sector, including combating illegal wildlife. Um, and some people listening to this might well say, well, why are you talking to William Haig? And that's a fair point. So let me just address that very quickly. And I think the first point is that what has been happening in the UK over the last two weeks has been covered a great deal from the left-leaning perspective in papers and with commentators, etc. And we've enjoyed all of that. And so uh, we here are seeking to run an apolitical podcast but we feel like a perspective from someone like him is really important if this conversation is going to be as persuasive as it needs to be in a mainstream way. And secondly, William just wrote a very interesting piece in The Telegraph, which is sort of the main right-wing paper in the UK, where if he doesn't endorse the actions of Extinction Rebellion and of Greta, then he's certainly appreciative of the aims and admiring of the commitment and is seeking to have a conversation about what solutions the right can offer to this. Now, writing this in a paper whose lead story on the website today is titled When Will the Green Zealots Realise That Britain Cannot Fight Climate Change Alone is an important contribution, we feel, to shifting the debate. And he says in his article that a command and control approach with lots of government intervention, which is what he perceives is being requested, will make people poorer. And instead, he calls for the precipitation of a shift to excellence and freedom and says that only that will create the technologies that need to be created to allow us to actually solve this issue. Well, so, um, so I think we would agree because he is trying to point us to a middle-of-the-road uh, path here that would be acceptable to both sides, and particularly that would be in line with the science and have a gradual, organized, planned transition out of the high-carbon economy. However, what he doesn't say in his article is he doesn't address the how-to. How are we going to do that in particular? How are we going to do that in the short time frame that we have to bend the curve of emissions. So the question is, shall we talk to him? <laughs> I think it's a good idea to talk to him. I, I, I really admire um, him talking about uh, one of the, the problems being the sickening promotion of corporate interests at the expense of the environment. I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to hear somebody from his side of the political spectrum uh, weigh in on that particular theme. But uh, in particular, I think the key is going to be actually bringing together this, this uh, left and right uh, you know, separation and actually finding some kind of mixed economy solution, because um, that looks to me like the only way to do it. Right. Mixed partisan solution. 
A bipartisan solution. <laughs> a bipartisan <laughs> solution. How beautifully put, Christiana. So, can we talk to him? Let's do it. So, William, we're delighted to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And um, we the, the podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. And it's about looking for ways that we can collectively move through the crisis of climate change and remake the world. And this week, we're looking at what's gone on over the past couple of weeks in the UK with regard to climate change. And there's been significant civil disobedience in the streets. There's been a declaration of emergency from governments in Westminster, but also in Scotland and Wales. And there's been the report of the Climate Change Committee. And everyone's trying to work out what all this means and what's next. And we were keen to talk to you for a couple of reasons. First, you're a relatively rare creature in global terms of being a right-of-centre politician who understands and takes very seriously the science, but who presents a different analysis of what to do about the problem. And secondly, you have this kind of broader perspective, given your long history of senior leadership in the Conservative Party, but now you sit at sort of more of an arm's length and can perhaps see more clearly the connections and the implications. So really appreciate the conversation. Christiane's going to jump in with a question and I'll pitch in with one or two, but thanks for being here. So I'm wondering um, the following. You actually, like my father, are an incredible student of history in addition to everything else that you have done. But having studied the history that we have, do you think that we are at the point now which would be quite unique for the climate change concerns? Are we at the point where we can say we have reached the moment of civil disobedience? Are we there? Do you think that is helpful, having seen civil disobedience movements in the past, both in the UK as well as many other countries in India and the, in the United States, do you think that they play an, an impactful role in getting us from point A to point B, in particular when it seems rather difficult to get from point A to point B? Well, they can play a, a role with a big impact, of course, and we can all think of very many positive changes that have happened in the world as a result of some civil disobedience. But I would say the most dramatic changes are accomplished when there is a high level of popular support as well. You know, because really what changes politics is not just a protest, but a very large part of the population sympathizing with or being prepared to vote along lines that support that uh, protest. And so it's important to conduct it in a way which maximizes that support, uh, maintains and increases that support, and doesn't exclude any part of the population from feeling they can support the cause um, that Extinction Rebellion or other climate change activists are pursuing. So you would say what we've seen in the streets, Extinction Rebellion and the children in the streets is sort of the core of what you would call the protest, but it's important for that not to be the boundary, but rather to be able to expand that boundary to millions of people who are sitting on ho at home without going to the streets, but that should feel equally, let's say, at least internally and in their opinion and in their vote, 
mobilized. Yes, I think that is the crucial thing. Remember that politicians, governments are used to seeing off protests. They do this on all sorts of other issues that we've forgotten over time. They're the ones that aren't featuring much in the history books. We've all, And I'm sure in 30 years in politics, I've had all sorts of protests about all sorts of issues. Um, but what really counts is when you say, well, millions of people are going to vote at the next general election on these lines. Um, and uh, other countries are really taking action on this. So exactly, you just put it a very good way, Christian. This is not the boundary. This is it's an it's um, a means to an end uh, for the people involved. It, it's important not to uh, protest to the point that you antagonize a lot of people. The objective here must be to mobilize the whole political world in this vital cause, because we're not going to succeed. We're not going to save the planet if we uh, have a 50-50 division about it. We're going to need 80 or 90% of the world's population joining in the effort, or most of the world's political parties joining in the effort. Exactly. And they have a responsibility, those political parties, to take up this cause. But everyone involved in this cause has a responsibility not to push anybody away from the cause. That people on the left and on the right should feel that it's okay to become involved. They can still pursue their other political objectives, whatever that may be, as well as have credible, necessary policies on climate change. Mm. Mm. So not mutually exclusive, but complementary to uh, to what people uh, are yeah. feeling very yeah. strongly about, I mean, according uh, to their... You know, because, for instance, uh, it's perhaps easier to see how you can pursue socialistic objectives. But let's say that people have a, like me, have a belief in um, that it's better for society if you have competition, if you have wealth creation and so on. Now, uh, I might not agree. Many activists on this issue might disagree with me. But we're going to need people like me, as it were, or people in business, indeed. people who are conservatives. because and, and indeed, we need that wealth creation. I don't think there's any model of um, dealing with climate change that doesn't include some remarkable technological advances uh, and then employing those on a big scale. Now, for that, we're going to need some highly innovative, successful corporations. We are going to need uh, societies using the wealth they're generating uh, to come up with incredibly adaptive new ideas and techniques. We're we're going to need to channel the people's natural entrepreneurship and risk-taking into this area. Um, we're not going to do it if we say to everybody, well, you're all going to be, to save the planet, you're all going to be a little bit poorer and you're all going to have to travel less and it's most unfortunate for you all. But I, I believe you have to work with the grain of human nature. And mm. I, I also think, I'm not a biologist or anthropologist, but... You know, we, we have evolved as human beings to value the short term over the long term and to value our individual survival and satisfaction over the collect, over the global. Um, and we evolved those things for perfectly sensible reasons when we were hunter-gatherers uh, and in earlier forms of human civilization. 
Uh, we didn't evolve for this challenge. So now we're going to have to use that natural human selfishness, if you like, uh, and we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to employ the natural human desire to lead an exciting life in the service of dealing with climate change. Mm. And that's why I say involve the right. Don't just think of socialistic right. solutions. And I, I think that's, um, that's one thing that's really been missing, right? With the right, we've often had a conversation about science, which has been has taken a long time, rather than a conversation about legitimate alternative philosophical approaches to the solution. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that's interesting or that I would like to understand from you is what you say about working with the human, the grain of human nature is very interesting. But how do you do that fast, right? Because yes. the reason Extinction Rebellion are on the streets right. is because 12 years, you know, facing down yes. the barrel of this very serious situation. And that's why they feel that requires this urgent mobilization. How do we do this in a different way? Well, somehow we have to get that... We have to require people to be adaptive and innovative in the right way. Now, that involves, for instance, taxation policies, mm. you know, but market-based policies. Uh, personally, I think if we could ever agree, uh, this may be very difficult, on a global approach to carbon tax mm. and make sure that goes up steadily in the future, you would start to channel human ingenuity to work around this problem, to, uh, to see how you could change technology to greatly reduce carbon emissions. The other thing, the natural uh, working with the grain of human nature, is to really use peer pressure uh, as well. We, um, while, we're, while we're all to some extent selfish individuals, we do like the esteem of our neighbors, our friends, relatives, and uh, companions. And so it, we have to try and make it a, a, a socially unacceptable to be acting in ways as an individual or a company or a family, um, which, is, which are destroying the climate. And we all should be finding ways to make a difference because probably every human being can do something about mm. this. Now, how do we do that? Well, that is to do with communication and education. And something like David Attenborough's really compelling recent program is of enormous mm. value because it is an objective, respected person putting the case, not a political activist mm. putting the case. Mm -hmm. And that's much more trusted, much more convincing. Mm. You know, one of the things that I find a little bit difficult to understand and hope that you can clarify this for us or throw some light is that um, it is it is true that there is policy that is moving the action on climate change forward. It's true that we're seeing more and more um, extreme weather events and that might propel us forward. But single-handedly, if there's one factor that is moving us increasingly quickly into the solution space, it is the forces of the market. It's the fact that we do have the advance of technologies, that those technologies are coming down in price, that people can actually choose to use those technologies, no matter what their politics, no matter what their religion, no matter what their behavior. It really is the forces of the market that are with us on this. So the mystery to me is, given that that is the case, 
why has it been so difficult for those on the right to join this effort? Because frankly, you are the champions of the forces of the market. You are the champions of the capacity of the private sector to bring solutions. Do you actually see that there is hopefully soon a possibility for those on the right of politics to say this is actually top priority and we really want to move on this? Why, 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 why is that not the case? Yes. Now, I completely agree with you uh, about this. That's why it's us talking about it, because I do agree with you about this. But you're asking a very good question. Why isn't everybody on the right uh, thinking like that? Yeah. I think it, it does differ from one country to Why another. Why haven't you hijacked that agenda? <laughs> yes, uh, well, quite, well, of course, if David Cameron, was, my old colleague, was sitting here, he would say, actually, he did in Britain when he, he became, he, much fun was made of him because, you know, he went to the Arctic and was photographed with husky dogs and he was talking about climate change and a lot of the press uh, attacked him for that and he would say he did, he was uh, setting out that agenda. But when looked at globally... Uh, yes, yeah. Sorry to interrupt uh, you. Yeah, One please. thing about David Cameron, which is interesting, is that did seem to be a priority. Yes. But then when the political winds took it in a different direction, there was the famous cut the green crap quote and all that sort of thing. It didn't feel like it was core to who he was as a politician. Right. And well, I, knowing him, I think it was more core than it might look to people. Okay. But yes, it is true. Let, let's not have a whole, yeah. I don't want to have a, we could have a long argument about the statistics and performance of the sure. coalition government under him. And probably what it would all boil down to is that quite a lot was done, but not enough. Right. Uh, and uh, that's what we'd end up agreeing. And that's true of most governments right. uh, in the world, of course. But, but he uh, did at least signal that, that this was a, a cause for the centre-right in politics. He did signal that, whatever you think about the subsequent record, whereas President Trump would not even signal that. Right. Um, and actually, Australian liberals who are now divided about that, they're a major conservative party in the world, uh, they haven't generally uh, signaled that. So what's the problem here? And, and I think the problem is, of course, partly that um, the right on, in politics is closer to the business world. And some of the business world has not embraced this, uh, at least right. until recently. And some have had a vested interest in continuing to use fossil fuels and so on. Um, and then there is a reaction, I think, against some of the activism you know if the solutions are socialistic if the solutions are anti-business that mm. are being put forward mm -hmm. well you do then have a counterproductive effect on the not um, just anti-business but anti-capitalist anti-capitalist yeah you know um, people say well to change uh, on this issue we'll have to change the whole of society well once mm. you say we're going to change the whole of society to people on the conservative end of politics in many countries that sounds like a very threatening mm. thing and that's why I say we have to work with the grain and with what we've got and mobilize, make it a, a vital thing for individuals to take part in uh, and make it something where we find the, the market-based um, solution where we use our wealth. Now, and, and don't use that as a dirty word. After all, the richest societies will be in the best position to pursue technological change and the richer a society becomes, 
Uh, generally speaking, the less it expands its population. Uh, and one of the things that is one of the driving forces behind climate change is the vast expansion in the human population. Over the last few decades, we need people to be rich enough, to be urbanized enough in African countries, for instance, for their rate of population growth to slow down pretty dramatically. So um, human beings trying to satisfy their natural desire to be better off and to be competitive is something that's got to be harnessed. We have, mm. we have to, and I don't pretend to have all the answers to that, yeah. but that would be a different perspective from what many Green Party activists would have in, mm. many, in many European countries. And I think, so what, what's interesting about that is that's the, a sort of compelling vision that can be appealing to the right of politics. But if I can just sort of ask you about the urgency question, because I think that is the key thing, mm -hmm. right? And that's what's new now is the yes. question of urgency. So if you were to look forward and imagine that we got to 2030 and we had addressed this issue, which scientists tell us would mean a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions around the world, how would we have done that under this type of model of harnessing innovation? I think that probably the only chance of having done that would be some big breakthroughs that people really take up, but partly because we require them to take them up with um, having far more electric uh, vehicles, but sometimes giving them the opportunity to do so. For instance, uh, let's take a may seem a small example, but uh, the idea of solar roof roofing tiles. Hmm. Um, now, here is really something that I believe will be very dramatic when it is generally hmm. available. There are lots of us who will rebuild our roofs with solar roofing tiles hmm. um, rather than solar panels. Um, those sorts of things are going to have to become generally on stream hmm. um, in many parts of the world. I don't think there's any prospect of reducing uh, emissions by 50% from just people wanting it or right. willing it. Right. We're going to have, and certainly not by making themselves poorer. You know, if, if you tell people they're just going to be poorer doing it, they will go to their own destruction. Mm. The, the, mm. the human race told that it has to go against its own nature will just career to right. its destruction. And we have seen previous civilizations that have done that, you know, yeah. like the famously documented what happened to the people on Easter Island and so on. Yeah. People will behave collectively, irrationally, if it's in their short-term interest to do so. Yeah. So we are going to have to give them new ways of doing this. So I also like the idea of uh, solar uh, complete roofs, right? That are solar. In fact, solar windows that are also harnessing. Right. Uh, and you can you can begin to think that every home, every building will have its own energy down the line, 2030, 2040, how very, very different our cities are going to be. But that is the long-term vision, which we all share and love. The question now is, from there, walk it back and how do we fill the data between the delta between the UK having just declared a state of emergency uh, on climate change? And what are the next steps? What are the next steps so that we can actually accelerate everyone having solar tiles on their roofs? How do we get there? I don't have the, uh, you know, I've just um, started writing and talking about this, having been persuaded by all the, the compelling evidence of recent yeah. years and the sort of things that 
people are, that activists are saying about it. So I'm really not pretending to have the complete policy prescription here. I do think, though, part of this, uh, you know, of the answer to the question, where do we go from here, is let us say there is a general election here in the UK in the next year. There might easily be, uh, the way things are going, for other reasons. Um, well, then, if a sufficiently large part of the electorate are really motivated by this, those parties are all going to have to present ambitious programs on this. And, of course, they will be different from each other. There right. will be no single perfect answer. And some answers will be a bit more socialistic and some will be a bit more enterprise-based than others from mm. the different parties. But at least they should feel that they have to make this one of the top four or five things in their election manifesto. Of course, if it's an emergency, it would be the top thing. But um, they're going to be arguing about Brexit. They're going to be arguing about taxes. But if it's the, one of the top four or five things that they're having to tell all the voters about and that young people in particular are asking them about um, at every meeting about the election and on all social media, well... That makes an enormous difference then to the policies pursued over the next few years. One can be cynical about politicians, understandably so. Do they ever do what they say they're going to do? But it's in elections that people really, the voters assert themselves and make their concerns known. So if that's the pattern in Britain, in America, in Germany, in elections to come over the next couple of years, it will produce a bigger change than you might think. And that's an added reason to say to activists who, who found very creative ways, actually, creative and polite, polite ways of, of uh, civil disobedience uh, in London the last couple mm. of weeks, don't forget that your real objective is to bring along vast masses of um, mm. millions of Absolutely. people. Um, that is what's really going to change politics, change the priorities of, of governments. I think that, um, you know, what the point you've made about the fact that the, the government will ultimately respond to the electorate, of course, is, is true. And in a way, I think that is, that is the point of the outrage. I mean, the optimism, I think, which you've pointed to is like, you know, the enterprise can be there. We can become richer as a result of this transition, telling that story. But in a way, the outrage has to drive the politicians to being bold enough to actually take the measures, whether it's a carbon tax or whatever else. So I think just to come back to where this conversation started, do you think we get there without more civil disobedience to try and drive more interest? Because I think the interesting thing about Extinction Rebellion is it doesn't seem to have turned everybody off the climate mm -hmm. right. discussion like it could have done. It seems to have been bringing people on board and raising the issue. Well, I, I'd like to think that we could get there without civil disobedience, but, uh, and of course it's difficult for somebody who is uh, like me to advocate sure. civil disobedience, and I'm not doing that. I would just say that if it's necessary, it has to be really carefully thought about. Yeah. And a, a lot of what happened in London and other cities was very carefully thought about. I really right. give them credit uh, for that. Um, um, but it has to, it really has to keep that same spirit of making a point without turning millions of people uh, mm. against Off. it. So yeah. others will have to judge whether, you know, sure. I'm, I'm really, you're, you're, you're taking me a bit too far to get me to advocate civil <laughs> disobedience. <laughs> what I will advocate is that politicians of all political parties and all nationalities really grasp this. Sure. 
issue now. Don't just declare an emergency, but start to act as if it was and, and try to make their country a model way forward. So um, you can all decide about the outrage and people like me should work on the optimism. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually love to work on both at the same time because we think that is, uh, that is where, uh, where there is a lot of space for, for moving forward. Um, thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate uh, your time. And I'm actually thinking here we would love to come back and have another conversation with you when the next UK election, whenever that is, uh, might come around and, uh, and see where things are. Very good. We'll talk at the next election. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so I thought that was a very interesting conversation with William Haig because I think it begins to throw some light on how to move forward toward a bipartisan approach to climate change. And honestly, one of the things that has been plaguing climate action in the UK and in the United States and in so many other countries is the fact that somehow climate change got uh, taken under the wing of, uh, of the leftist parties and abandoned by the right. And I've always thought that climate change is not a partisan issue. It's a human issue. So I thought that was a very, very interesting conversation, which could lead the way, start at least, to put a few pebbles on the path toward a broader political alliance um, to address climate change in a timely fashion, which is what we need. Having said that, however, what this conversation has not captured is the urgency. And as we know, there is civil disobedience on the streets, certainly in the UK, and all of those civil disobedient movements, the Extinction Rebellion, the children on the streets, what they're reminding us is of the urgency, the fact that we now have an emergency, a planetary emergency on our hands, although that is difficult to see when you're going about your routine business. But we really uh, are totally running out of time. So while it is excellent to move into the space of bipartisan agreement, that moving into bipartisan space has to be done, not tomorrow, but actually yesterday. Yeah, and I think that second bit is the key. Um, and unless this philosophy of enterprise can really come up with a solution that is commensurate to the scale of the problem and with the needed speed, then it is in serious danger of fundamentally failing to protect humanity. And I think the reality is that the test is whether we can really agree collectively on pricing mechanisms that do stimulate innovation at the scale that's needed to get there within 12 years. That's both pricing the stuff we want and getting rid of the legacy pricing of the stuff we don't want, which of course is still everywhere. Um, I think it's great that William's thinking about this and he clearly cares very deeply about the issue, but it does strike me we have a good bit of road to run if the solutions he proposed are to be a, a sufficient level of ambition to solve the problem. So um, I think this is a really important conversation and one we should continue to have. So thanks very much for joining us on this episode of Outrage and Optimism. This has been the second episode this week after our bonus episode with Jane Goodall on Wednesday. But we will be back next Friday with another episode. 
Whether you joined us last week or whether you're new today, thanks for listening. And we really hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review, which really does make a huge difference. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism. The co-hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and me, Tom Rivett-Karnak. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Pete Clutton-Brock, Clay Carnell, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivett-Karnak, Alexandra Vargas-Morera, Sarah Thomas, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Michael Northrup from Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Nigel Topping from Women Business. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to hit the subscribe button, and please do tell your friends. Join us next week, same time, same place, for another conversation about reshaping the world. We'll see you then.